It's Cover to Cover. I'm Beth. I'm Naomi. We're third culture kids in South Korea. Bringing you into the world of Korean books through conversations with authors, translators, and more. So, the translated Korean book taking bestseller lists by storm this summer is about none other than BTS. Right, they celebrated their 10-year anniversary this year. Fun fact, 2013 was also when I first came to Korea. Happy 10-year anniversary to you as well. Thank you so much. I can't believe it's already been a decade. The book that we're talking about today, Beyond the Story, 10-Year Record of BTS, was released in July everywhere to commemorate the anniversary of BTS's fandom, ARMY. It was written by journalist Kang Myung-seok, who is the editor of Weverse magazine, which is run by BTS's agency. He compiled three years' worth of interviews with the seven members, reflecting on the highs and lows of the past 10 years since their debut. We got to sit down with Adam Jung, an assistant professor in Korean studies at Arizona State University, who is writing a book about K-pop fandom. We had a wide-ranging conversation with Adam, who talked about how BTS shaped the K-pop industry, how they helped open up the conversation about mental health, ARMY's role in the band's success, and more. Let's dive in. Hi, Adam. Welcome to the Cover to Cover podcast. How are you? Hi, Beth. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm fine. Thank you. And before we dive in, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your personal background, like your roots and your relation to Korea and the U.S.? Sure. I was born in Korea, and then my family and I moved to the U.S. when I was two years old, and we came back when I was seven years old. So I grew up in the U.S. a little bit when I was very young. I can't remember any of it anyway. So, um, And then I went to uh, elementary school, middle school, high school, and also university in Korea. That's where uh, I guess that's my foundational years. And that's also when I found K-pop. And then I went back to the States for my master's and PhD program. I also taught there a bit. And then I worked in China for three years as a professor of Korean culture and also K-pop. And now I'm moving back to the U.S. So um, I tend to move around a lot. And I'm very excited where this next journey will uh, lead me. We've invited you here today because we wanted to get your take on the BTS book that was released recently. What did you think of the book? So first of all, after I read the book, I also asked my friends what they thought of the book. And, you know, they're, they're very enthusiastic followers of BTS. And of course, as I expected, they already knew like 80%, 90% of you know, what BTS had went through, the details. But still, I thought this was a really remarkable book for those who kind of knew BTS. Like, of course, you see them on the news everywhere, but they didn't really, if they didn't really know um, BTS's uh, humble background, like how they became BTS, what, you know, what we see today, it would be a great introduction, not just to BTS, but also to, to just general uh, Korean society and also the idol system. And did you read the book in English or Korean? Normally when there's like a, you know, original version in Korean and when it's translated into English, I would go for the Korean version just because I'm scared that something got lost in translation. But I really trusted the translators um, that they will do a superb job. And they really did. They really brought BTS's words in, in li- into life on the pages. And I'm pretty sure, you know, there's nothing left, you know, in translation. 
And I really love the translation, so I really also want to say thank you to the team who worked so hard. I watched this um, interview with one of the translators and the press, and he talked about how they were really pressed for time and you know they were really rushed, but they did a wonderful job. And so I also want to thank the translators for all their hard work. Yeah, shout out to Anton Her, Claire Richards, and Celine Jung for um, yeah translating the book and doing a great job. Yeah, I really learned a lot reading about their success story. And speaking of their success, BTS has probably broken every K-pop record there is. What do you think is the biggest change that the band has brought about to the industry? And so, like I said, I was a K-pop fan since I was very little, since uh, what you could call like first-generation idols. Um, back then in the 90s, idols were supposed to be very you know, mysterious, kind of aloof. You weren't supposed to have close access to them. You weren't supposed to feel really um, intimate with them because, you know, they were up there and fans were down here. But I think that's that's really changed because of BTS. The book also shows how um, the members had these, you know, unpolished, unscripted content on the blogs and how, you know, the company trusted them in creating those kind of content. And I think that eventually helped them move to other media platforms like Live or, you know, YouTube. And because BTS, from the very, very early days, had constant, you know, daily, frequent communication with their fans, fans were able to, you know, feel close to BTS, have this kind of attachment, have this kind of, you know, intimacy with them. And they could also witness BTS's growth, you know, daily, annually, as they, you know, keep moving, topping the charts. And I think that's really one of the things that BTS has changed. And after witnessing BTS communicating with fans on a quotidian basis and how that affects fans' psychology and their attachment. I do believe that other uh, K-pop companies kind of try to follow those uh, media strategies. And so, of course, BTS has changed many things, but I would say that's one of the things that I find really remarkable. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to see that they were one of the pioneers of this strategy. Well, we're not sure whether it was intentional or whether it was due to lack of resources, right? Because Big Hit at the time was a quite a small company. In the book, there's also a lot of discussion about how much creative control the members, especially RM, J-Hope, and Suga, had in the production process, in the writing of the lyrics and um, formulation of the songs. So in your view, was this part of what contributed to their global appeal? Yes, I agree, Beth. I really do think the intense collaboration between the members and also between the members and Pang PD really helped build a team, um, really helped solidify the team into a very strong one. And, you know, fans can really see that when you're watching uh, live streamings, when you're listening to, uh, you know, their V-Lives, when you're watching what they're posting on social media. Some, some people say, well, maybe they're just, you know, acting. Maybe it's all a polished act. But, you know, you can only act for so long, right? And when it becomes a daily quotidian communication, fans know that, you know, if, it, if it's something real, if, if the collaboration is really real, if they're really working hard, if they really mean, if there's really something real, fans know that. Adam, you mentioned this earlier about how BTS really built um, up a more intimate relationship with their fans, and we get that. Um, in the book throughout as well. What do you think sets ARMY apart from other K-pop fandoms? One of the things that ARMY has started really early on, um, before any other fandom did, was 
supporting BTS in the U.S. by calling radio stations and requesting songs to be played on the radio. And um, like I said, I went back to the U.S. when uh, for, for grad school in 2010, and that was even before Psy's Gangnam Style craze. And so I do not remember ever hearing any K-pop song on, for example, you know, on Kiss FM or you know when I was shopping in Trader Joe's. But then, like after Psy's Gangnam Style craze, maybe I would hear Gangnam Style in Trader Joe's, like maybe once in a while, and you know, but still I wouldn't really hear any other K-pop songs on the radio. And Army has really changed that because they dedicated so much time and effort in getting BTS uh, being played on the radio in the U.S. And nowadays, you know, it's not a it's not a unusual thing. I read in the articles that uh, Korean language songs are the third most played songs. Uh, in U.S. radios, and that's a that's a huge achievement. That's something really big. I mean, maybe it's just one th- song in a- every five hours, but hey, it's still one song in every five hours. So, I think um, calling in uh, requests in U.S. radio stations to help support BTS become more mainstream is one of the things that Army has done really early than any other fandom. How big of a role do you think Korean diaspora? has in the success of BTS in the U.S. especially? Now, because I mostly grew up in Korea, I don't think I can really answer that question uh, accurately. But still, I do think that Koreans living in the diaspora feel very proud about BTS and K-pop success and also, of course, K-drama and you know everything related to Hallyu. And that has really created a huge impact, not just for Korea itself, but also Koreans living in the diaspora because people will tend to t- treat you differently after the Korean wave. They, you know, when I first went to the U.S. and somebody asked me, oh, where are you from? And I'm like, oh, I'm from Korea. And they would ask me um, automatically north or south. And sometimes I would say like middle just to <laughs> poke fun at them. Um, and sometimes they're like, oh, middle Korea, is that a thing? But now nobody asks me that question. Nobody asks, oh, is it North or South Korea? They're, they're like immediately, oh, I love BTS or I love this other K-pop thing or I've seen Squid Games. It just, it just really struck me how people view you differently because of all these cultural stuff that's happening. Yeah, you know, an anecdote I wanted to share related to this was, you know, growing up in Vancouver as a millennial, I also had the same experience where most people didn't really know anything about Korea. I mean, the Korean kids hung out to themselves. But I was back in Vancouver last November, and I remember riding the SkyTrain, and I saw a group of young teenage Korean girls come in. And they were speaking in Korean very loudly. And so I thought, I just assumed that they were um, exchange students or, you know, visiting And then they easily switched back into English. And then I realized, oh, these girls want to show off that they can speak Korean and that they're Korean, you know, Um, maybe in the same way that, you know, like, let's say if you were like a bunch of cool French teenagers, you would like speak really loudly in French or something. I don't know if that's a weird analogy, but yeah. So I think that it really then dawned on me that Korean culture and the Korean language has somehow now gained some kind of new stature that is completely different from what I was used to growing up as a teenager and even in university. So, yeah, just wanted to ask you about your experience and your observation about that. Yeah, definitely. And I'm really feeling that because um, according to Modern Language Association, uh, student enrollment in Korean language classes have increased more than 80 percent 
since like 2009 to 2016. And that's, you know, as you know, that's really when, you know, K-pop started to pick up. And that's also when, you know, BTS became really big in the U.S. And I think if it wasn't for K-pop, you know, we wouldn't have a huge increase in student enrollment. Not this many students would be, interest would be in like Korean culture and history. So I really do think, um, you know, the Korean wave is benefiting not just, you know, hard industry, but also like soft power in many, many ways. We know that ARMY has been mobilized for other initiatives or causes outside of K-pop, for example, in the political or economic arena. Could you give us some examples and do you see that happening in other fandoms? Yes, BTS and also other K-pop fans of BTS and also other K-pop acts have been very, very active and vocal in expressing their opinions on environmental issues. For example, there is a group called uh, K-pop for Planet, and they're very, very active about, you know, making sure that K-pop is also environmentally sustainable, because right now it's, it's so not. Um, there, there's a lot of work to be done. And one of the army that I really, really loved uh, reading about was this Italian army who learned about the cell ferry disaster because of BTS's Spring Day music video. As a side note, Adam is talking about the 2014 sinking of a ferry that killed more than 300 people, 250 among whom were high school students on a field trip. And she studied about the cell ferry disaster and she made a YouTube clip with her own, you know, interpretations about this is probably what, you know, this is referring to in the music video and so on. And then she even made a trip to Korea to visit uh, the sites of the disaster and also meet with the, the parents of the cell victims. And to me, that was really touching and also surprising because for Koreans, the cell ferry disaster is a traumatizing incident, yes, but maybe for people who live in other places, you know, it's kind of very far from them. They might not really relate to why it's such a traumatizing disaster. And to see someone really put in a lot of effort into understanding and uh, sympathizing with the parents, you know, the the nation's trauma, that was really uh, incredible to watch. And also that kind of, um, I'm, I'm also just really personally interested in that because uh, actually, my first book is about how performances represent and commemorate the cell ferry disaster. And there's a chapter about Spring Day and also other K-pop songs that uh, directly or indirectly uh, commemorate the cell ferry disaster. And so to see that Italian army study about the cell and travel all the way to Korea to uh, pay her respects, that was also very, very moving to see. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always interesting to, to see the interaction between K-pop and social issues. And, you know, especially when it comes to national tragedies or polarizing topics. One thing, um, just as a side note, that I thought was very interesting is how Girls' Generation song has become a gay anthem, the Towards a New World, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I thought that, yeah, it's a really interesting um, example of how there is this inevitable permeability between K-pop and almost solidarity amongst youth especially, but also sometimes even marginalized groups who use K-pop as a vehicle for empowerment. That being said, one thing that surprised me while reading the book was the mention of cyberbullying. We learned that actually netizens do this extreme background checking of celebrities to dig up dirt on them. It's called checks. (laughs) which is something I learned through this book. Um, And so there was this kind of guerrilla-style rooting for the underdog spirit that animated the ARMY, especially in these early days. So how big of a role do you think ARMY played 
in the in BTS's success, especially with this sort of protective attitude that they had? I mean, fans are everything. Without fans, there is no K-pop. Um, I know people talk a lot about like, you know, the the changes in the industry, like government discourse and technology and everything. But really, to me, K-pop equals fans. And I still remember in the very early days when BTS debuted, and when you know I read in in like internet news like there's going to be a new group called Pangtan Sonyeondan. I, I remember scrolling down, looking at the comment section, and I remember reading things like, well, that's a really weird name, and, you know, kind of like mocking the name and also the members, and also because they were, back then, you know, they started as a hip-hop group, kind of, uh, people also kind of made comparisons to Big Bang, and, oh, well, you know, they were mocking BTS. And I remember very clearly there was a lot of cyberbullying and that is a huge problem, even up to today, because we, we often see stars who uh, get depressed or you know, anxious because of those kind of comments that they see online, even to the point where they might uh, do something drastic and take their own lives. And so I think there needs to be stricter uh, regulations and also uh, penalties or punishment about cyberbullying, even today. And fans really do everything to make sure that their artists, that their favorite idols are happy and they're healthy and they don't even res- they don't even expect anything in return, but they really perform. I would say it's you know effective labor. It's a labor of love. It's really a performance of care to protect and make sure that their artists are happy. And so, for example, they will, um, maybe they will, fight online with those cyber bullies or what they also do is um, they stream music they download music they also vote for annual awards also music tv programs Um, they also create a lot of events that are not just aligned to these kind of uh, neoliberal capitalist you know industry norms but they also do a lot of events that kind of actually go against those industry norms to make meaning for themselves to create a community and of course, ARMY has been, the way I see it, the number one factor, the, the main you know, instrumental factor for BTS success. I mean, but that also applies to all other K-pop acts as well. I mean, even if you're gorgeous, you, you're really talented and singing and dancing, even if you have a great producer and songwriter, if you don't have a strong b- fan base, you can't make it. Fans are everything in K-pop. I think what was really impressive was just the sheer power and influence fan culture or fandom has, especially in Korea. But what also was surprising to me is um, I went back home to Hong Kong recently in March, and I thought that, you know, what Korean fans did for their idols, for example, organizing cafe birthday events, printing coffee cup sleeves and merchandise, and all of these things, I thought it was only very specific to Korea. But when I went back to Hong Kong, I realized that fans were doing the same thing. So Korea basically exported their fandom culture to support 
Hong Kong's own pop stars. So Hong Kong has this really popular band called Mirror at the moment, and I've read in some reports that some of them used to be K-pop fans or or are still K-pop fans, but they also became Mirror fans, and they just used almost identical ways in how they supported Korean idols in supporting Hong Kong idols. And I thought that was, you know, it's not just exporting the K-pop model elsewhere; it's exporting other stuff. Oh yes, definitely. Um, it's really amazing to see how K-pop fan practices, like you said. Travel in other parts of the world, for example, things like transportation advertisements, like the things you see on subways and buses, advertisements for your favorite idols, for example, for a particular like anniversary, like the day of their debut or their birthday, or just to cheer them on. So the very first bus and subway advertisements for idols started around like 2010 and 11. It's actually one of the organizers is a very close friend of mine, and and some other.、Um, Fan club members started posting photos of the the posters that they saw in in Seoul, and so I think they I forgot the exact amount, but they、um, raised huge amount of money in just twelve days, which was more than enough to advertise、uh, for buses and subways all over Korea. And since then, you know, we see these kind of advertisements everywhere today. And so my friends said, like, oh yeah, I never knew this would like blow up into something so big and universal. And so. Yeah, it's also interesting to see how these kind of fan practices travel to other places and how fans、uh, adapt them for、uh, their local stars as well. Yeah, in Hong Kong, I think for the one of the stars'、um, singer's birthday, they bought a wraparound ad for the tram, and then on the, his birthday, taking the tram was free for the whole of Hong Kong, and that was their. Birthday present, I guess, to him. They、so. paid for the entire day of transportation. They crowdfunded、um, ads. Yeah, they crowdfunded this whole thing, and it was insane. So his name is Gang Tou. So they called it Gang Tou Day. Yeah, I mean, in Seoul, you'll see posters on the subway saying "Happy RM Day" or whatever to you know commemorate K-pop stars' birthdays. And turning to another topic. BTS is also known for speaking up about youth empowerment and has contributed to the growing conversation about mental health. Suga has openly discussed his depression, anxiety, and OCD. And also, RM is a big reader, and the book "I Want to Die But I Want to Eat Dakbokki" was one of his picks, which directly addresses mental health in South Korean society. We reviewed the book actually, and it's been a bestseller in Korea and abroad thanks to the RM bump. And in June of last year, BTS announced a temporary hiatus for members to pursue individual projects as well as to serve the mandatory military service. And I remember being surprised at how candid they were in disclosing the reasons. RM said, "The problem with K-pop and the whole idol system is that it doesn't give you time to mature." He and the other members also went on to disclose in that video,、um, announcing their temporary hiatus, that they had been questioning their identity as a group and as artists. For listeners who are not familiar with K-pop, this kind of candid disclosing of your,、um, I guess, emotional state and questioning the system of K-pop idols is quite unprecedented. Yeah, as copy editors, we see stories about K-pop artists taking a break from group activities for unspecified health reasons. The most we get is anxiety or poor physical condition. By contrast, in the U.S., we are seeing more headlines about celebrities. Coming forward about mental health struggles through tell-all documentaries or interviews, for example, Taylor Swift, Demi Lovato, Naomi Osaka, etc. 
So given all of this, uh, what's your take on BTS's role in raising the topic of mental health in the K-pop industry? Yeah, first of all, I want to address two things. One is that um, we've seen many idols talk very frankly about how even when they're unhappy or depressed, they're pressured to act happy and you know bubbly because they're their role, their job as idols is to make sure that the people who are watching them also feel happy and energized. And so I think many idols face this kind of huge pressure about always having this facade of happiness. And it becomes very difficult for them to openly reveal what they're really feeling or, you know, being honest about some kind of issues that they will be having. And second is that Even uh, up to today, even when we talk about mental issues more frequently than we did uh, like five, six, seven years ago, there still is a certain kind of stigma about having mental issues. Like, for example, I have some friends who will talk openly about that they're seeing a counselor or they're, you know, the kind of meds that they're taking or the issues that they're having and, you know, we'll discuss it and consult each other. But I also know that some people will Uh, maybe frown upon talking about these issues or will just kind of like hide these issues even if they're struggling with it. So I do think even up to today, there's a lot of work to be done about discussing and revealing mental issues in Korea. And in that way, BTS has been a huge game changer in just openly talking about, you know, your depressions or anxieties or even just you know, saying that, oh, we're actually just going to take a break for like a month. We're just going to stop touring for now because of these conditions. And some of you may know that Korea's, I would say, work environment, work conditions are very stressful at times. Uh, People expect you to just keep working. And when you're resting, when you're just taking a break, people tend to feel guilty that they're not doing more. Oh, like maybe I should, you know, Uh, study some kind of foreign language when I'm taking a break. Maybe I should uh, take up another hobby. It's like you you can't just really just space out and do nothing when you're taking a break. It's like you have to be productive even when you're just, you know, spending some free time on your own. So having BTS talk about those kind of uh, issues that they were facing, also just being more open about, oh, we're just going to take a break about something, and also about... uh, accepting yourself the way you are and also loving yourself, I think has been very instrumental in changing how we regard mental issues and how we so far has been like just hiding these kind of things when we should actually be be very open about them. Yeah, and I think one thing for people who have never lived in Korea or who don't know much about Korean culture, one thing that's really important to point out is that You know, at the end of the day, BTS is a South Korean band, and that means that all of the members were socialized in South Korean society, which quite normalizes, first of all, overwork and really prioritizes results over process sometimes. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion going on right now in contemporary society, especially between Gen Z, millennials and the older generation about the value of work and life and balance and um, mental health, among a slew of other things. And so um, I think that this is a conversation that goes beyond just the K-pop industry and into South Korean society as a whole. Adam, you're working on a book about K-pop fandoms. Can you tell us about it and any other upcoming projects? Yeah, so my second book, 
is about K-pop fandom. Um, right now, it's called K-pop fandom uh, dot dot performing Tokku from the 1990s to today. Uh, in case you didn't know, Tokku is a Korean slang for like stan or very avid, enthusiastic fan. And so I draw from, of course, like like theories from cultural studies and media studies, but also there is a lot of my own experiences from the very early 90s up to today. And I look at how fans perform labor to support their favorite idols. And so I look at fans not just as consumers of K-pop, but also as these, you know, incredible people who affect both the industry and also just Korean culture and society. And I look at how sometimes these fan activities, you know, they go in line with the neoliberal capitalist industry, um, but also sometimes they move away from the industry to create meanings for themselves. And so I look at a variety of fan practices from the early 90s up to today. So there's also a little bit of like history about like how fans operated, how they did things back in the day when we didn't have social media or smartphones or anything. It was all very... Um, analog and seems very, you know, prehistoric. And then I also kind of compare them to how today everything is all digital and everything happens, you know, at the snap of your fingers, everything's just a click away. And I also talk about the media uh, transformations and how technology enabled all of that. And so, yes, um, I'm still finishing up the last chapter. And university presses take a bit of time than trade presses. So I'm expecting it to be published in early 2025. And also it will be open access, meaning you, you could buy a book, like a copy, a literal copy for like a paper book, but you could also just go online and read it for free because I really want a lot of people to just read it and enjoy it. And to me, if a lot of people who are interested in learning more about K-pop and the origins of K-pop fan practices, I think that would make me very, very happy. That sounds super exciting. And we really look forward to your upcoming work. We, we know you're an ARMY, but we didn't get a chance to ask you, who do you stand other than BTS? I would say, I mean, I kind of want to see myself as the Mother Teresa of K-pop because even before there was a term K-pop, like in the early 90s, there wasn't the term K-pop. We just said like Kayo or Taejunggayo, meaning Korean popular music. And idols came onto the scene in like 96. Actually, I would say 95. I was... Um, a big fan of Kong Yirobi, Deuce, Sotaeji and Boys, Shin Seung-un. And then, you know, when H.O.T. and Idol and all the other teenage groups came to the scene, I was also a big fan of all of them. You were only supposed to stand one group at a time, and multis were not allowed. And that made me very sad because I was a multi-fan even back then. And so, for example, like, my friends really loved uh, Cheki, who was kind of like a rival to H.O.T. And so... I would buy H.O.T. cassette tapes secretly, but I wouldn't take them to school because I knew that my friends would be mad at me. And so, uh, like, on the surface, I would tell my friends, oh, yes, I'm a Jackie stan, I'm a Jackie fan. But, like, at home, I would listen to also to H.O.T. cassette tapes and, you know, different kind of groups. And so I kind of like to dabble in all kinds of groups, and I'm always interested in keeping up with, oh, you know, what's the newest album this week? Like, who came out with a new single? And it's not just... Sometimes it's it, sometimes it might feel like a job because I do research and I teach K-pop, but also most of the time it's it's more of a lifestyle. I just like I just like it because it's fun and it's also really interesting to see the changes how K-pop 
keeps transforming the sound and the style. Nowadays, I'm really uh, immersed with new genes, new sound, and how um, they're kind of also changing the way that K-pop looks and sounds. And so, yeah. Before you go, we're trying out a new segment at the end of each episode where we ask guests the question, what's an interesting Korean word or phrase that you'd like to share? And for me, um, I'm going to just start first. I recently learned the term 소확행, which is a shortened form of 소소하지만 확실한 행복, <laughs> small but guaranteed happiness. It's actually a little late to the game. I realized that this was the number one term in 2018. So <laughs> dating myself a bit here. Um, but yeah, so I'm going to turn the question to you. What is a term that you'd like to share? Well, um, when I told you about uh, my book title, I already kind of explained what toku means, avid, enthusiastic fan. But to kind of go beyond that term, tokji um, means, you know, fanning or standing, doing fan practices. And among fans in like social media, there's this, you know, term called odok hengdok, which is short for meaning, well, if we're going to be, you know, stands anyway, if we're going to be standing anyway, let's do it happily, you know. Because we all know standing is not just, you know, flowers and happiness all the time. Sometimes there are complications. Sometimes there are fights that you have to um, intervene with. And so uh, I think a lot of fans kind of, uh, face those kind of struggles. But in the end of the day, we're standing. We're fanning because we want to be happy. And beca- because it also gives us a source of happiness. And so I would say to everyone who is a fan of, you know, whether it's BTS or other K-pop acts, adok hengdok. Mm-hmm. And we hope that fans of Korean literature will adok hengdok for this podcast or their favorite Korean author. Thanks so much, Adam, for speaking to us today. Uh, we really enjoyed this conversation. And thank you, everybody else, for tuning in. You can find us on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. Before we sign off, we have a K-book recommendation from one of our listeners, Faye from the UK. Here's Faye. Hi, my name's Faye, and I'm from London. I would like to recommend the book Kim Ji-young, born 1982, by Cho Nam-ju. This moving, witty and powerful book stood out for me as I felt the main character could be any woman, but the book was also an eye-opening insight into the harsh reality women face in Korean society. Thanks, Faye, for listening and supporting Cover to Cover. Please tweet us or leave a comment if you have any Korean book recommendations, and we'll share it in our next episode. 